Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. There was something about being out of my rhythm and out of my life and out of the expectations. I didn't have to work as hard to step into a new sense of self or a new way of being. I'm Jordan Kistner, and you're listening to Thresholds, a weekly series of free-ranging conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterwards. Quick note, I, Jordan, am taking a brief break from hosting this spring to work on some other projects. And while I am off mic, we are really lucky to have Mira Jacob occupying the interviewer seat. Mira is a novelist, a graphic memoirist, and an all-around brilliant mind and excellent conversationalist. She was our very first Thresholds guest, and I have never stopped wanting to listen to her talk. I also was excited by who she wanted to talk to for these shows. I'll be back later in the spring, but until then, Mira's got the host mic. A while ago, I was working on a memoir about the racial divide in America, and I got scared. Scared enough that it got hard to write. And I told my friend, novelist Caitlin Greenidge, and she said this thing that I'll never forget, which is, write for us. The us that have all the same questions you do. I love that advice. And it helped me in the process. I started looking for other people who were doing the same thing, which is to say, asking the difficult questions, the vulnerable ones, the spongy ones, the ones that allow everyone else a little more breathing room because they make space in our brains and our hearts. And that's when I found the podcast Still Processing. I also found co-host Jay Wortham, who's a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine and publishes amazing articles on culture and technology and wellness. Jay's also the editor of the visual anthology Black Futures, along with Kimberly Drew, which was a 2020 editor's choice by the New York Times Book Review. I can't even tell you how closely I would listen to their questions in that podcast, sometimes backing up just to hear that weird kind of crackly silence that happens right before they ask them. It felt like watching a tree blossom over and over and over, like watching something become its most miraculous and vibrant and rooted self. Hi, DK. All I right. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
you texted me last night. You said, mm-hmm. hey, before we jump on the mic tomorrow, how do you want me to refer to you in this interview? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe this is what we should talk about. <laughs> right? And yeah. it's great because, okay, so in the last year, I've decided to personally and sometimes professionally go by Jay. And it started because while I was on sabbatical last year, I was spending time in lots of other places, including the magnificent islands of Hawaii and then some time in the not so magnificent desert. No, I love LA. Of LA. And while I was there, I started going to these queer and trans strip nights called Alejandra's Night, run by this incredible performer, Coyote Park. And, you know, they were always late at night in a way that way past my bedtime these days, because during sabbatical, I was really invested in rest. I didn't have meetings. My life was not the chaos Muppet that it is normally. And so I was sleeping all the time. And and the work that I was excavating was really heavy. And so my body, it seemed to me, wanted more rest, wanted more downtime, more stillness. So I was giving myself that. And these nights were Wednesdays and they started at fucking 11. 11, what? you know? And I mean, yes. And I, I'm not a napper. I can't nap to go out. People are like, take a disco nap. I'm like, I will never wake up. I'm a napper. If I go down, I might wake up two days later. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. So I don't like to do it. But I would just mind over matter. I wouldn't think about it. You know, I'd have like a light dinner and like try to work out. So I had extra energy. And then I would just go. And these nights were these places where, I mean, every single kind of gender expression and play and just dynamic revelry would come out. And you couldn't, you know, you couldn't, I I guess what I'm trying to say is when I walked through the door, I felt an opportunity to be a different me. I felt a lot of freedom. You know, I knew friends that were there, right? But they're my most queerest, gayest, most trans friends. So any, you know, evolution, mutation, shift, shape-shifting I wanted to do, they weren't going to question it. So there was no one that was going to hold me to some earlier version of myself when I was in this space or just generally. But I was meeting a lot of people, right, who would be like, who are you? Who are you? Like, tell me everything. And it was this, like, incredible bonding experience because... Listen, me being me, I love a strip club. I love a strip night. I've been going since I was 15. That's another story for another time. I would just go to the ATM. I would just get out like $200, $1 bills. I would get $200 out and change it at the bar into $1 bills. There's no ATM that hands out $200, 200s, $1s. And <laughs> yeah. I would sit in the front row and just literally just whole, you know, I love a cash phone. I love a cash phone, like in the, you know, the memes, the rappers. And I would just hold this stack of money and just give it to these performers. And, you know, people's presentations would shift from song to song and dress and I mean, hair length. And, you know, it just, it was the first time I really was, was seeing before me, like second by second, how much gender is a farce and how much we can put it on and take it off and make it work for us. We don't have to work for it. 
So in this incredibly rich and fertile and just vibrant and sexy and dynamic environment, I just started going by Jay. I felt good. The music was loud. It was easier than Jenna. And I would be like, hey, I'm Jay. And it felt androgynous in this way that I've always wanted to be, but never really known how to step into. It felt beyond the binary. You know, it just felt really right. And that's how it started. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of, I, I mean, because because I have a pandemic brain, it could be last year, but it could also be two years ago. Right. Um, <laughs> there was this pair of pants that you brought. Um, mm. we, we went out once and you, there was a pair of pants that you had just bought and they were really baggy. And mm. when I saw you, I said, cute pants. And you just grinned like mm. your whole face. And you said, I got these and these are the first pants. I really feel like these ones are me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this at all? Like it was such mm-hmm. a, it was so visceral. Like mm-hmm. for me looking at you and you've always been, you know, a very in your body person, but I could even tell in that moment that there was something happening there mm-hmm. that was, mm-hmm. that was like seismically different. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering in this space, when you're watching everybody else have this moment and have this kind of morphing, were there people that were with you every time or was it or was it different every time? Were there different people with you each time you went? There was a steady crew. There was a rock steady crew that would go of maybe two or three people. And we would always hold it down until the end. But because it's L.A., things are not going that late. So they weren't they weren't wildly late nights. But you know, there was, there was a base group that would go, but every time I went, I met dozens of new people. I mean, it was truly so invigorating each week I went because I went every week that it happened while I was living in LA, some of the same people would appear. Right. And so they would come over and be like, Hey Jay, like it, my identity started to form in community, in this space specifically. That's what I was wondering. And it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that repetition and that reinforcement maybe, like that feedback loop helped me take it from those spaces, that space into the rest of my life. Because in the beginning, it was really only happening at Alejandro's night. Wow. Okay, so... You're in this space and this thing is happening. I'm also wondering the LA-ness of it, right? If you were to mm-hmm. if you were to try that to do that in New York, you know you know a lot of people here, right? You've been embedded in this community for a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know. over ten years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So being in a space when you're introducing yourself to people for the first time and you're in the middle of this kind of rapid transition, when you left the space, when you went back to your own space and you're still in LA, how did that feel? Oof. It was intense. You know, it was really freeing. I remember coming home one night and it might've been the first night, might've been the second night I went and I had maybe like $3 left in my fanny pack where I would stuff all my bills and I put them on my altar And I still have them on my altar. And I kept them because I just really wanted to bring that sense of freedom and unbridledness 
back into my life. And I have a pretty rigorous morning practice of gratitudes, prayer, affirmation at an altar. So seeing that money there was a way to tether maybe that experience into my everyday life. Yeah. You know, there's the way in which um, part of becoming is being seen by other people, right? Part of becoming, yeah. you sort of grow into this place where, and, and part of what you you become is this is how you are reflected in other people's vision. But part of it is really what you see in yourself. And the I'm just thinking of the the yous that are sort of making the transit in this space. Mm. The mm-hmm. you that is out in LA making the transit. The you that is in front of people becoming. And then the you that comes back to the altar, kind of putting all those people together. I don't know. Did it, did it, I guess when I'm thinking about it, did it ever, because you were kind of out, you're also, you're not at home, home in New York, right? You're already in transition. Did you ever feel weightless or did it feel empowering? Like what, what was that like? You're so spot on in bringing up that not being in New York helped me ease into whatever metaphorical new set of like baggy pants, right? Like There was something about being out of my rhythm and out of my life and out of the expectations. I didn't have to work as hard to step into a new sense of self or a new way of being. I think because LA is so sprawling and so spread out and people self-hibernate a lot, there's a lot more spaciousness for solitude and self-identification, self-acceptance, self-knowing. I mean, New York is so dense that, I mean, I was not in LA for that long. So what I'm about to say is just like a sliver of an observation. It's a, it's a true generalization. It may not be real, just my experience. Got you. But I wondered if, because LA is so sprawling and people hibernate a lot, there's a different type of knowing that one has to have of themselves there that is separate from New York's knowing, right? Like in New York, you kind of have to know (laughs) different things to survive. And in New York, because it's so dense and you're always bumping into people, people you know, people you don't know, people you want to know, people you don't want to (laughs) know, and you're always negotiating other people Right. Like I don't always have the luxury of time in New York to think about who I am and how I want to present and how I want to appear because I just don't have as much time. Yeah. You're in the mix. You're in the mix. You got to go. You got to get on the train. If you're going to make that meeting, if you're going to make that show, you got to call the Uber now, you know, and sometimes you just kind of make it work with what you have. But when I was in LA, you know, there was just a lot more spaciousness, again, because I was on sabbatical, my social life wasn't as busy because of LA and also because I didn't know as many people. And I felt too, in the circles that I was moving in, there wasn't such an attachment to who I was. A lot of people didn't know who the hell I was. You know, I'd say I'm a writer and people would be like, oh, what shows? And I'd be like, er, a book, you know? And everyone's like, oh, who cares? Like, (laughs) Immediately bored, right? (laughs) And there was freedom in that. I've never experienced that. You know, I came to New York at 
25 and started working for the New York Times. I mean, I've always been something of a known quantity here. And out there, it just, I wasn't beholden to anybody. And at a certain point, I was like, I'm not even beholden to myself. So who am I trying to people please? Because nobody out here is checking for me. And that was really freeing. Yes. Okay, how do you do with the, okay, the beholden to myself part. I'm not even beholden to myself. I feel like sometimes I do well with that, with that mm. notion. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like I slip off the edge of the planet. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious how it felt for you in that moment in LA. And also the other thing that we're, you know, this is also, you know, mid-pandemic, right? This is, right. I mean, this is not the early days, but we are, as we are still in a pandemic, this was also during that. People were differently social, right? Um, and then and then holding on to yourself is hard enough. You're now in another place. You're experiencing a new kind of transition. And if you're not even beholden to yourself, how does that sit in your body? How did that work for you? For me, it's really, really tied up in questions of fear, right? Like fear of rejection, fear of not belonging, fear of judgment. And that's, that's just part of my story, right? That's not necessarily going to be true for everybody. But I think during my sabbatical, I was also going through this period and this transition of recognizing how much my past and old patterns and emotional inheritances were really shaping my relationship to myself and other people. And so there was a lot of shedding of that. So being beholden to myself wasn't that useful because it involved a lot of walls that I put up or a lot of controlling ways that I was trying to stay sane, I guess, or trying to numb out or trying to be in the world. Like I didn't realize how intolerable it felt for me to be like fully dilated in the world all the time. And so, so it was a real period of trying to figure out how to, you know, I don't know, like drywall all the leaky parts so that I could be fully dilated because that's actually how I want to move through the world. Like I want to be really vulnerable and I want to be open to intimacy. I want to be discerning, but I don't want to be bracing against reality all the time, which is what I was doing. But I do hear what you're saying. It's, you know, there is this way in which if if you're too untethered, it's like the top is going to topple over. It's like, it can't keep spinning like that. You know, there, there is this kind of murky infinity edge that you kind of slide towards in some ways. But I think at least for me, because I had all these other mechanisms that look like support systems, community groups, you know, spiritual accountability partners that were keeping me very tethered. And I had really intense grounding rituals during that time. I think I meditated every single day. Like I I tracked it for a while. And at one point I hit like 190 days of meditation in a row. Like I was holding my shit down. So that allowed me to release in these other ways. Yeah. Yeah. But I I hear what you're saying though. No, I mean, but it's interesting because you are talking, I mean, the thing that you're saying, which I think is really helpful too, is, is you were accountable. You were accountable in a million other ways. You know, you did have different sort of for lack of a better word, like containers that were mm-hmm. holding on to parts of you so that the rest of you could kind of grow and move at the same time. Is that accurate? Yes, yes, yes. There was this very yeah. big question of like, if 
you were fully resourced, if you had everything you needed, if you inherently trusted that the universe was working on your behalf all the time, there was a benevolent conspiracy operating on your behalf and in a very cheesy way. If you are exactly where you're supposed to be, the right time, the right place, everything, right? And there's nothing to fear. What would you do? And who would you be? And, you know, I guess, you know, I'm, I think I'm really trying to hammer out this idea that I had been kind of moving nonstop since I got to New York. And I had been kind of creating versions of self that were really convenient and felt right and worked for a time. And then I got to this place where I was just like, I think there's more. I think this question of identity is not settled. And I think I'm now faced with an opportunity to see what else is in there, what other selves want to come out. I love the idea of a benevolent conspiracy. Yeah, I need it. Because <laughs> <laughs> some just- days... Yeah. <laughs> You're talking to the person who accidentally ate cat food today. Yeah. Um, yes, I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> but right. Like the idea, the idea. And, and, and even when you said that, right, it felt like, it felt like somebody putting like a warm hand on my shoulder. Like there's a benevolent mm. conspiracy. Mm. All of mm. these things mm. that feel like they could be at odds with you, or they could feel like challenges. It's all aligning towards something. But also the thing that you said, which I think is really interesting is that it doesn't, what that allows is for you to do the actual harder work, which is not mm-hmm. believing in a benevolent conspiracy. It's who do I want to be if everything is aligned? Who do I want to be? And and that part is really, it sounds very energizing. Like it sounds really kind of, I don't know, to me, when you say that to me, I feel like, did you feel alive? Did you feel like you had 20 hands? Like how, you know yeah, what I mean? Like, I did, I did. Oh my God, I was like Alicia Keys of the Grammys. Remember when she was playing two pianos at once a couple of yes. years ago? That's oh how I felt. Oh my God, yes. That is truly how I felt. Like I'm like, huh? I can do this? <laughs> oh God, but you know, uh, I love that image. Uh, me too. Yeah, I mean, it, it's seared in my brain. I will carry it around rent-free forever because it's incredible, willfully, like, gratefully. But, you know, it's one thing to come into a new understanding of yourself, whatever that may be. It's another thing to try to take that self into a world that knows you in one way Mm -hmm. and might have a lot of resistance to you changing. I mean, that's the thing about change. Like, actually, other people sometimes find it harder for you to change than you do. I yes. found that when I quit drinking yes. alcohol. I found that when I quit drinking coffee, believe it or not. The coffee upset people more than the alcohol, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Are you serious? And <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I was in a I coffee say, shop uh-huh. yesterday and I got a decaf latte. And I was meeting a friend and the person at the table next to us was like, decaf? <laughs> And then kind of like looked shocked as though they didn't realize they said it out loud. And I was like, I just nodded. I was like, yeah, no, it, it is alarming. I understand. It's it's alarming to me too. And sometimes, but it's, it's what works best for my brain. So yeah, it's wild. So you come back to New York, right? When did you get back here? May. 
-hmm. of last year, almost a year ago. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So you know what I'm going to ask, right? You come back and you've done all of this kind of wild growth and playing two pianos at one time, metaphorically. (laughs) And you're back in a place where people have known you. You have been a known quantity. Mm. And now you are actually just a different quantity entirely, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what happens then? Mm. Yeah, it was really interesting. But what I found was that my inner compass being pointed in this new right direction was actually enough. So by that, I mean, I changed my name on my social media, like profiles. I was like, what are those things called again? Oh yeah, profiles. Um, And I think I Instagrammed a photo from Starbucks of just the letter J on a cup. And I have this theory when people and coffee shops get it right, like the singular letter J, they're gay. And if they write J-A-Y, they're straight. I don't know why. I don't make the rules. It just seems to be true. It's really interesting (laughs) that there is like some people understand the singularity of the letter versus like needing to. Anyway, um, it's a crackpot theory. I, I don't know. But but you know, I like this theory. I like this theory. Uh-huh. Thank you. I think it's true. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to stand beside it. But there was something about making these small signaling changes that really went a long way. And I was surprised. I was completely surprised by how many people just from those small things alone. Right. And it wasn't like on Instagram, I was like, allow me to reintroduce myself. It was, it was subtle because I also felt really strongly and I still feel this way that I just, I don't want to police other people. I don't want to police my gender. I actually don't want it to be laborious for me or anybody else because it's actually very joyful for me. And I'm using gender in the letter, the singularity of the letter J kind of, kind of interchangeably because going by J does feel really aligned with being non-binary, which is also something that I've just kind of been signaling more quietly and not needing to have a big announcement about. Um, but it just felt like people really got it. And I was shocked. I mean, I remember someone I've only met once DMing me to ask if they could, you know, like a work question and they used J and I was like in tears. Right. Or like I went back to the office, um, and I hadn't been for years and people were like, Oh, Hey J. And I was just sort of like WTF. Like, you know, I, I just, it was this moment where I really felt cradled by my choices and just the care and concern of other people, which, you know, in the, in the wake of the pandemic has been in kind of short supply, like all this energy of like, we're in this together and we want to be tender with each other. It feels like it's kind of dissipated. And I've just become really cynical and callous about that in some ways, but in this other way, I mean, it was really tremendous and shocking. I mean, absolutely shocking. Yeah. I was really overwhelmed and humbled and it felt great. And I was, you know, in the beginning, I was kind of scared that if I made this shift and then wanted to unshift, that it would be confusing or it would upset people. Like I was really some like ancient, you know, old fear of um, 
displeasing people was really coming up for me. Like it was, it was so interesting. And a friend of mine was just sort of like, you can do whatever you want. If you want to go by D in uh, like six months time, that's fine too. And it was such a good reminder. Like I've known so many friends who've actually shifted their names many times in the courses of their lifetime. And why not? Like, why not trust that people can hold complexity? You know, and I, I think that ultimately came up because when I got back to New York and I started making a season of Still Processing for the Times with Wesley Morris, our team was like, okay, so we're all calling you Jay. Wesley's like, I'm calling you Jay. But in the show description, I think it still sometimes said Jenna. And then I didn't want to necessarily change my history Uh, I don't know. Like it it was, it's, I'm still unresolved about that question. Like I don't want to lose that past self. And it's, you know, Jenna to me is not a dead name. And I I do really respect and honor that practice. Um, And it's really important to respect that when people uh, need that and when it is. And it's just not for me right now. And maybe it will be in the future, but it's not. And that came up with a friend too, who was like, you know, I've been really sharp elbowing people who are still using Jenna. And I was like, well, it kind of depends on how well they know me though. You know, it's, it's not a, it's not a huge deal if they've read my work before or are engaging with me through the times, but if it's like our inner circle, you know, I prefer that. But you know, what's so interesting is I have a couple of friends from Virginia and they say my name in this way that is so familial that I I actually did tell them privately. (laughs) It's okay if you still call me Jenna because they say it the way my family does, which is Jenna. And I never want to lose that. Like there's something for me that I can just remember being a little kid. Because Jenna is also not on my birth certificate. That's the other thing too. This is a name that was given to me because there were other Jennifers in my either first grade or pre-K or kindergarten class and I was very upset what? by the idea. Wait, I didn't know that. Yeah, a true Scorpio. I know. No one knows this. It's it's like deep cuts. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been a Jennifer. A Jennifer wears lace gloves and like acid acid wash jeans, and you know what I'm saying. Like has a bang and yeah, I do. Uh-huh. It's it's uh-huh. not me. It's never been me. Um, but I've been Jenna, you know, since I was five, maybe. So I've never even used that name either. And that was actually, it was really interesting because my mom was really struggling in the beginning and was like, well, what's wrong with the name we gave you? And I was like, this is also not the name you gave me. Let's be clear. And she was like, you're right. You know, she had to kind of concede. She was like, you're right. You're right. I was like, let's, you know, let's, let's also talk about how many names, you know, nobody in my family goes by their government names. Nobody does. Everybody has second names, third names, hidden names. My mother, my mother's first name that she uses is not her government name, you know, and and that's, that's very true in my, my particular branch of family. It's so strange and delightful and I love it. So maybe there's also that legacy there, right. That I'm kind of leaning into, but yeah, it's been really fascinating. And I think I go back and forth. Like sometimes it really does annoy me um, because I just feel so far from that name now. And other times Mm. it's just like, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, you just described a Jennifer to me. Like a Jennifer does this and this and this and this. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) What does a Jenna do? 
Like, what is a Jenna in your mind? Oh, I mean, did that name ever suit me? You know, I don't know. Feels like a tomboy. It's giving Christy a babysitter's Mm. club. You know, it's like that energy. It's like, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right? It's like playful. But it's also not... It's it's a strange name, I think. Like I don't know. I never felt like super connected to that name. It just worked. It worked for the time that it that it needed to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just it's so funny because I because I also I think one of the things that occurred to me was when when you said to me, "I'm going by Jay." I in my brain I felt like yes, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think that's also part of. Um, it just, it felt like, yes, of course. Yes, that does. Yes, that makes sense. That's where we're at now. Yeah, of course. Um, and as you were talking, I was thinking about this idea of you could change your name whenever you like, what, you know, your friend that said that to you, you could change your name to D if you want. You could, you know, you can iterate forward even from there. That idea of losing the preciousness around what you claim Mm-hmm, right. So like mm-hmm. taking in the thing and also not being so beholden to it that you can't imagine moving on from that. So in preparation for our conversation and talking about this, I went back into the manuscript of my book called Work of Body Out Who Knows When and revisited the chapters where I talk about some of this stuff because the whole book is about dissociation and, and my relationship to it. But the deeper I got into like a somatic dissociation, the more I started to realize that there were these cultural dissociations and gender dissociations that I was grappling with as well. And what I wrote about my name change is that, you know, there is this kind of distance between the J and the E-N-N-A that's doing a kind of labor to like take me to this new place. Like it's, it's like walking between two doorways that are like pressed up against each other. Like you might see in like a psychedelic movie or like a scary horror movie, not horror because there's nothing scary about this, but just like, you know, it's, it's trippy and it's weird. And like, whether the E and an A is like a fairy taking me from one world to the next, or maybe it's the J and like lopping off the end of that. Like it is, it is reminiscent of like ferrying between like two knowings Mm -hmm. and like two periods of time. Like it is this really interesting Mm -hmm. work beyond just like saying, you know, I'm going to go by this now. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's so funny? I'm thinking of, um, so before I knew you, I knew you on your podcast, right? Um, and I think I've told you this before, but when I was, when I was writing my memoir, one of the things that I did a lot was listen to you because there is a quality that you have, a curiosity that you have that I find extremely vulnerable but in that way also it gives me this sort of wild hope Mm -hmm. for us as humans 
Oh, um, so there's a there's this like beautiful way that you have of sort of of gently like looking into things and prying the layers apart that I just I mean, before I had met you, I remember just holding on to that as I was writing because it made me feel brave. It's like, you know, there's like it's a kind of vulnerability that makes me feel brave. And it's occurring to me as you're saying this, that to me feels for me as a person who reflects, who can reflect you back to you just a bit. That to me feels like this essential quality mm. that travels between, I, I never knew Jennifer, but Jenna <laughs> and Jay and whatever comes in the future, you know, whatever iteration, this thing, this kind of spongy, absorbing, but also curiously kind of seeping into all the cracks and looking around, that thing to me feels so vitally you, mm. if that mm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm. Um, and I guess when, okay, a while ago, a friend of mine, um, told me once that the, that when he thinks of how he wants to next iterate in the world as a creative person, um, he said he likes to picture his kind of interior life and his creative life as a topographical map. Mm. And he likes to Mm. go toward the opposite quadrant, meaning like the diagonal quadrant. So if you're in this quadrant, there's the diagonal quadrant, right? Which you can only see just a little glimpse of. It's not the mm. things that you've seen on either border. It's not sort of the obvious way. It's that diagonal thing. Oof. Do you know what I'm saying? I love that. Yes. Kitty corner or catty corner, depending on where yes, you Yes, I know. That's why I'm telling you, because it seems because it seems <laughs> distinctly of you. Um, <laughs> that little thing, if you're looking at that diagonal quadrant and we're talking about what it is like to move between, to kind of ferry yourself between places. What little glimpse is in that diagonal quadrant for you? Mm. Like, what is it made of? Hmm. Yeah. Wow. I really love this question. I like thinking about this because it is, it is sort of this peripheral unknowing, you know, accessible but slightly inaccessible space, right? Like walking diagonally requires a lot of cognitive processes if if you can walk. And so it's um yeah, it's and it's such a different direction. I mean, where I'm always trying to go, and I think this is why I like talking about it and writing about it and just being open as much as a five times Scorpio can be open about things. Um <laughs> But because I'm saying that, but I'm like, I always feel like I'm revealing a lot, but I actually reveal very little, but, but enough, I think enough um, to be helpful. I mean, you know, I, I like working out these things in process. uh, Sorry. I like working out these things in public after I've processed them a lot for myself because it feels helpful. Like it feels useful to talk about the experience of being a human being, which is just really what my entire life has amalgamated into in terms of all the work that I do, um, trying to figure out how to make that experience more tolerable, more possible, more something. And I, I mean, ultimately right now, especially I'm just, I'm trying to get to a place where I really like myself, you know, like it's easy to talk about self-love. It's easy to talk about self-acceptance. It's easy to talk about all the phobic things and the political forces that 
wield shame and wield violence and, and hypervigilance against us so that we aren't safe enough to be in our bodies and our fullest expression of selves, especially right now. I cannot overstate how precarious it is right now for people who are trans and gender nonconforming. It feels really scary. And all of that is work that is meant to push you back inside of yourself. And I feel that. I do feel that um, deeply. I worry about losing credibility, right, if I lean into more non-binariness and transness. And I worry about um, what that means. And that's not right. <laughs> that's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to live our lives truly, hopefully, towards the end of them, understanding a deepest and deeper sense of ourselves. And so that's, I guess that's what's in the quadrant for me, right? Like I, it is this sort of trying to get to a place that really is about acceptance for me uh, first and um, a deeper sense of knowing. And maybe others experience that or learn from it, or I don't know, I, I, I think about trying to do it for myself first before performing it for other people. Um, but yeah, does that make sense? Like in, in yeah. my mind, I'm just really picturing like there's like another me holding out a hand and I don't know who that me is and I don't know what their deal is yet. Um, or older, wiser, you know, it's down the line, hopefully. Thresholds is produced by Jordan Kistner and Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshibud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisisthresholds.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.